All right, so my good friends, we talked about exile, but we talked about exile as understanding it really as the loss, the loss that is experienced with leaving behind a place, a culture, a community, an environment, and an understanding of self, and the fact that exile means entering into a new place, new community, new environment, and a new understanding of self. And this is a journey. This is a process. I alluded to the 40 years in the desert of the people of Israel. I alluded to the time in Egypt, which began as an exile, but became a home, and then it became a difficult home, and then there was an exile again, right? The finding of a new home. Of course, they were returning to their promised land, right? But it was essentially the same process. So let's talk a little bit about the journey. Father Noah and I spoke um, spoke about these uh, these presentations, as I mentioned to you, and he expressed interest in having me talk about this journey out of exile and into the new destination, into the new place, as com compared to the journey of Great Lent. Now, this part is very dear to me because I really loved the worship of the church. And I'll give you a little bit of an intro to that. But um, after a, kind of a stretch of an intro, I'm gonna go through some almost rapid fire information uh, that describes Great Lent and describes this process. And some of it will feel like a little, a little too much detail, but I didn't want to skip over too many things. Um, no, I'm sorry, it'll feel like a lot of points, but not a lot of detailed theological explanation about those points, because I, I really want to take you through these steps. I want us to actually take these steps together, and it's going to be impossible to describe all of Great Lent. Uh, we could talk for a week just on that. But Lent... Lent um, uh, literally, these were my notes from three months ago, actually. We talked early uh, January. Um, these were my notes uh, from my discussion with Father Noah. He wanted us to go through Lent as a time of pilgrimage through the liturgical worship that the Holy Church gives us. Because really, it is a journey. Life is a journey. We hear all those poetic Illusions, right? In all kinds of statements, and they are all good. They are, they are good. There is goodness coming out of those because we express them with that. But we need to understand them. Uh, we need to understand why we call it a journey. And that's why I, I want to spend this time together. Now, the reason why I have such great love for, uh, for this part is because I had just turned 15. We were in Sweden. As I mentioned to you, my dad was the founder, founding priest uh, of that church, Orthodox Church in Lund, which was primarily Romanians, but not only. And at that time in the country of Sweden, there was no diocese. Now there are two dioceses in, in, in the country of Sweden alone. 
Orthodox, and um, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, there were not very many priests. So we were in Lund on Sunday, and then on Saturday, my dad would go to two or three other smaller cities that had Orthodox communities, but didn't have a priest. And almost every other Orthodox priest in the country did the same thing, because there weren't enough, enough priests around. So what was he supposed to do? And in, in most cases, keep in mind that most of these people, especially those from Romania, Russia, even Serbia and Bulgaria, um, were not really educated in the faith. They, they were pious, they were faithful, but many of them did not know how to help a priest in the services or how to chant. And some of the, some of the Greeks were very helpful because some of them were really well prepared to step in and, 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 and help and actually be genuine participants in the life of the church. Some of the Arabs, Antiochians, would be the same. So with, uh, with that, my dad kind of having to go to these other communities, I was the oldest, I had to go. And I, you know, you kind of mind it sometimes, right? You miss some of the fun, but I started liking it. But what I realized very, very quickly was that, boy, these services are not easy. There's a lot happening, and there's a lot to understand. And before that, sure, I went to church, but I didn't pay attention. You know, why is the priest facing this way or that way? And why is he going to sense the church that way? And just a lot of stuff, right? You, you can get dizzy just paying attention to all of the details. So because I started really, really loving it, I started really um, studying it. And I was just asking for all kinds of books. And, uh, you know, my dad being now in contact with different, different priests and trying to gather in books. And I was like studying them to the letter of the law. And I just was memorizing stuff. I got really into it. You know, I became very, very nerdy about it and so on and so forth. And um, then when I, we moved to Canada and it, things were far better in, in, in Canada and I got to learn a lot more. We had more books and I loved studying the service books. And then I got my hands on what is called the Tipicon, the, the book that describes the services. And it was terrible. That should not be given to a teenager ever. Because you just become so holy. I mean, I was just holy. I was perfect. I knew everything. Um, and, uh, but I really, I really grew to love the worship, and I, I'm very thankful for that, and I still do. And I studied it, and I spent a lot of time studying it through seminary and even portion of graduate school in theology, and I continue to study it. I, uh, I, love, I loved learning about it throughout history and the different traditions, different practices, um, and even the different peculiarities that we've allowed to sneak in that probably shouldn't be in our services. So um, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great love of mine. But um, this journey 
that we're going on is a journey that's taking us someplace, right? You hear often the statement, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. Have you heard that before? Have you heard people say that? It just irks me. Really? What, what are you, stupid? Of course you're supposed to enjoy the journey and try to make the journey powerful and holy. But a journey without aim is exactly that, aimless. It's aimless. And even psychologically, we can't miss the mark if we don't have a mark, right? If we're not trying to head somewhere, then it's okay to sin, right? If you're not trying to hit a bullseye, then it's okay to shoot a bow and arrow or a gun anywhere. You're equally good, or you're equally right, or you have arrived wherever you are. We're not like that, my dear friends. We have a journey with a destination. We have a mark. We have a target. And we call him Jesus Christ. We call him God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call the mark the kingdom of heaven. Okay? But we're distracted. We're distracted. We're bombarded. The journey is always, always interrupted. I interrupted him briefly when I first arrived, and I apologize for interrupting him. And then he said, they're all interruptions, Father. And I thought, oh, he must be a hippie or something. <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's true. We're always interrupted. And then we have to make sure that the interruptions that come into our lives are actually able to travel with us towards that same destination, that target, that target. You know, when I was beginning to uh, think about exile, um, a short while after we spoke, I thought to myself, what, 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 what should I look into here? What, what do I need to pull out? So, um, of course, the stories from the Bible are, you know, they come easily, but almost everybody already knows them, and people have heard them. They know them better than I. And so I, I reminded myself, I remembered that, you know, St. John Chrysostom kind of went through exile. Let me look at his exile a little more. And St. John Chrysostom, he wrote a lot. I mean, this guy was a little on, in, on the insane side. Do you know that we have over 600 uh, homilies and over 200 of his letters? That's just the surviving stuff. Think about it. I mean, this guy did nothing but write, I tell you. What a boring guy. <laughs> Um, and then he leaves us a liturgy that we still follow 1,700 years later. What a boring guy. So anyhow, I decided to look into, into uh, St. John Chrysostom because he was exiled. Okay? And I started reading into it and so on and so forth. I, I actually came to the realization that um, his story, the, the story of his exile, was not so useful for my first for my first talk, but I realized that it was probably, I found a piece that I thought was more useful for my second talk. 
So I'd like you to, to listen to this quote from one of his writings uh, from Exile uh, that, uh, that I'm going to want you to, and I'm going to read it twice because it's a little longer. I'm, I'm going to want you to try and keep that in the back of your mind as I go through these rapid fire steps later on. Long after the theater is closed and everyone is gone away, those images of shameful women actresses still float before your soul, their words, their conduct, their glances, their walk, their positions, their excitations, their unchaste limbs. And there within you she kindles the Babylonian furnace in which the peace of your home, the purity of your heart, the happiness of your marriage will be burnt up. Boy, distractions, they can do a lot to really wreak havoc within us, don't they? Now, he's talking about a specific thing, as he was talking about people who are just too in love with the, with the world of theater production, in, 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 in his city of Constantinople, even though he was kind of going away now. He was in exile. You see, he was taken away into exile because he was too critical of, of the, not of the rich people or of the pagans. He was actually critical of the Christians because it was now becoming really popular to be a Christian. And a lot of people were becoming Christians. And a lot of the leaders were Christians already. So, he, he, was, he was very critical th through his sermons, especially. And because of that, they decided, well, we had enough. Let's get rid of this guy. And he was literally taken to the eastern shores of the Black Sea, uh, where he ended up dying really quite alone, in fact. Now, um, so how is Great Lent really a journey? Great Lent is a journey, and the fathers of the church really gave it to us as such. But don't think of it as a program development committee, okay? When I say that the fathers of the church gave it to us, you're going to hear me say that from time to time. It's not like that. It's not like a whole bunch of bishops got together and they said, okay, this Sunday is it, and this Sunday is it, and this is that. And it wasn't like that. You know, it's not like a program that you develop here at St. Philip's for a ministry or for, for the government develops a program for this community or a school or, or a company. And those things are good, actually. We should be doing that. It's important to be methodical about our ministries and intentional about how we put things together. But the life of the church, the worship life of the church didn't develop like that. The worship life of the church developed organically throughout the work of coming together to pray. They came together to pray, to worship God. And in doing so, the hierarchy of the church merely observes that there are certain worship services and certain practices that clearly are a revelation of the Holy Spirit in the life of the body of Christ, the body of people who gather around the chalice. And when we say that the church, the, the church fathers establish it, we simply mean that they recognize that the Holy Spirit is at work through this vehicle, and they pass it on to the next generation with guidance, with support system on how to maintain the presence and the manifestation of the Spirit through this. That's what we mean. 
ultimately, the idea is that the fathers of the church, the church herself, recognize that this is the revelation of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we keep it. We keep it. And it becomes sanctified even through the many cumbersome rubrics for our salvation. Now, I want to return a little bit to my family's history as this microcosm comparison that, that I was asked to give. After my parents fled, we, the five children, were reunited with them. Uh, you know, I was 15, like I said, and I, and I, I noticed that everything was different in the new place. It was different. I felt it, I saw it, I knew it. I didn't quite understand it, but I was there. I, I, and I remember those feelings of uh, just being torn, knowing that I do not know. I, I remember that. And quite simply, nothing was the same. Now, people around me spoke a different language. They looked different. You know, they, they believed in God differently. In fact, they believed in God so differently uh, that, at least to me, it looked like they believed and worshipped a different God. But it was deeper than that, my friends. You see this kind of entrance into that new world. It was deeper than that. It was actually that people greet each other differently when you go to a new place. People say hello differently for, from one place and one culture to another. People visit each other's homes differently. They go on vacation differently. And they treat work differently. And that was visible. It was palpable. And was rather traumatic. Now, this was the introduction, okay? The preparation. And I want to get back to the main topic of this session, the, the journey. Um, and, you know, this journey, looking at it as a passage, right, of Lenten worship from exile to arrival, to destination, because it's not aimless ever. Now, you see, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is the destination of our life here. This is the destination that we have as a body of Christ at prayer. In our worship life, you see, we have cycles. We have cycles in our worship life. Because cycles bring order to life. And we need order. We don't function in chaos. And think of simply being awake and sleeping, you see? You have to be sleeping for a period of time in order to be awake for a period of time, right? There's a cyclical nature to that very basic experience. And meals, right? We have a cycle about our meals. You couldn't just meet, eat all the food you need at 5 a.m. when I wake up. I couldn't eat that, everything I need, until 11 p.m. when I go to bed. I could, but I would be sick. And I would not function properly, you see? It would be out of order. And even something as simple as brushing your teeth, right? These are routines, these cycles that we have, these habits that are rotating in our lives, they have a purpose. 
they themselves, the habits themselves, the cycles themselves, might not necessarily be <laughs> enjoyable. I mean, it's brushing your teeth. If you really analyze it, you've got a stick with bristles on it, and you're rubbing it on your teeth and your gums. You can't say that you enjoy that, right? Do you enjoy brushing your teeth? No, you're weird if you do. You don't enjoy brushing your teeth. But you enjoy the outcome of brushing your teeth repeatedly, correct? But if you really analyze it, the outcome comes out of something that's quite dumb. I mean, you could hurt yourself using bristles on a stick and put it in your mouth, right? That's my point here. The worship of the church has cycles, has order, has routines. I like to call them the holy habits, okay? There are a number of cycles, such cycles in the church. We have a daily cycle of prayer, weekly cycle of worship, annual cycle of feasts. We have a, a musical cycle of eight tones, right? We have, we have a, a, an 11 rotational cycle of paying attention to the resurrection. How many of you go to matins in the morning? Dun, dun, dun. Go to Matins, my dear friends. You hear that 11 cycle of paying attention to the resurrection, right? So we have cycles of fasting and feasting. All of these things are there in order to what? Keep us functioning, to keep us regular, to add Metamucil to your holiness. All right, that woke you up just a little bit. Um, even though they are challenging and sometimes boring, they bring order. Thus, we treat them with respect and we strive to make them a significant and meaningful part of our lives. Right? We have all kinds of funky toothbrushes and even songs to teach our children to brush their teeth, right? Because we know the benefits of that boring activity. So, what is this journey of Great Lent to Pascha? We're in exile, so now we're adding order. We're looking for order. We know we love God. We know we want to worship Him. We have a desire. How many of you have been to Dormition Monastery in Michigan? Dormition Monastery in Michigan, which was the home of Father Roman Braga, has a, a wonderful holy woman as, a, as an abbess, Mother Gabriella. And she speaks often about discerning desire. All of us have desires, right? And she said, you have to really submit yourself to figure out if the desire of your heart is a holy desire. And if it is a holy desire, then you pursue it completely and it grows. It grows. I love hearing her. You should have brought her, not me. Um, she's been here. Yeah, she's wonderful. Anyhow, um, we're going through the journey because we know we have a desire and we know we have a destination and we're, we're in exile and we're making sense of it all and we're order, ordering it. And here's what the church gave us. The journey to Pascha 
goes year-round, like I said, but specifically we're talking about three separate seasons put together. The first season, we call it the Triodion. The Triodion comes, like most of these things come from Greek, it means the time of the Trinity, right? We, 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 give, that, we give that special attention. And that period of three weeks, technically, three weeks plus a day, has four Sundays in it. The first one is the publican and Pharisee, and the role for that Sunday is for us to figure out how to pray, right? We're taught how to pray. Then we have the prodigal son. That Sunday of the prodigal son reminds us that we need to have a realization that we have strayed away. We need to realize we're in exile to actually fix it. Then we have the Sunday of the last judgment. That's the third Sunday. And the last judgment is actually coming very parallel with the Proverbs, fears the beginning of wisdom. It actually is an awakening. It's a caution. It's a caution. Then we close the Triodion with Forgiveness Sunday. With Forgiveness Sunday. And this is what? The crowning of learning how to pray, realizing that we've strayed away, and realizing that if we do not correct ourselves, we will end up without God in eternity. And in that three-step transformation, we turn to His forgiveness because we realize that's where we gain it. That's where we gain it. This is wonderful. Now, of course, you've seen meat fair, cheese fair. These are popular life-type terms. They're fine. But the theology of the, of the church is reflected in these liturgical names for the Sundays. And Forgiveness Sunday closes off that period of three weeks and a day, and it kind of becomes our platform moving into Great Lent. It begins on, on the evening of that Sunday with Forgiveness Vespers, when the church begs forgiveness of each other, the community, right? If, if you have not experienced it yet, I beg you, please, put it on your calendar for next, next year. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. So we begin with that, and we begin the great fast, the great Lent. We change a lot of different things, right? We've already begun changing a little bit earlier, a week earlier, by letting go of meats, and now we're letting go of dairy and all this kind of stuff, and we're, we're really trying. The number of services increases a great deal, and we arrive at the first Sunday of Lent. What is that first Sunday of Lent? Sunday of Orthodoxy. Sunday of Orthodoxy is actually kind of perhaps sliding in a little bit because of a celebration in the ninth century when the triumph of icons was celebrated under the support of the Empress Theodora and the, the Church of Constantinople primarily going around with a procession of icons. But we can reuse this to remind ourselves that we are on the right path. We've been corrected. We're now striving on the right path.
Then we go to the second Sunday of Lent, St. Gregory Palamas. It's been dedicated to him because of his great value and importance. This wonderful father of the church who spent, uh, you know, kind of back and forth, the guy who was moved around a lot. Yeah, and he spent a lot of time in, in Thessalonica, primarily as, as bishop there. But he revealed to us the teachings about the energies of God and how the light of God is visible in the world, okay, is manifested in the world. We're in this, we finished the second week of fast, and we're already seeing what? We're already seeing the light. We're already seeing it. We go to the next Sunday of the fast, this Sunday coming up, tomorrow, and we have the veneration or adoration of the Holy Cross. When we spend time preparing ourselves, transforming our hearts to no longer see the cross as a sign of shameful death, but as a sign of victory. That's the transformation that takes place on Holy Friday, right? The sign of shameful death becomes a sign of victory over death when Jesus Christ conquers death, even though he dies on the cross. And we dedicate this Sunday to give ourselves almost like a little extra courage, okay? Then we move on to the Sunday after that. St. John of the Ladder, the fourth Sunday of Lent. In St. John of the Ladder, this one is, what a treasure, right? What a treasure. He wrote this little book just so the monks of this one monastery can, uh, can, can figure out how to actually get their stuff in order about their own lives, right? And what does it become? It becomes a masterpiece that begins to guide the entire church in a process of repentance, understanding repentance. But as we understand repentance, we need help, don't we? Because if you read the latter, you just realize, every time I read the latter, the, uh, the, the book, the Ladder of Divine Ascent, it's like, I gotta give up, man. I, Okay, this one failed, this one failed, this one failed. It's, it can be discouraging, right? Thank the good Lord, we can see in the next Sunday an example of somebody who was completely discouraged, and yet she gained heaven, St. Mary of Egypt. She realized how unworthy she was, and yet how worthy the Lord God deemed her. Now, if that's not encouragement to love God even more, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. And I have to tell you, I have realized the love of God more deeply in those moments when I realized that I don't deserve it at all. Mary of Egypt is a bit of a crowning, to be honest with you, is a bit of a finalization, like a conclusion to this journey of Great Lent. We still have a week left after her Sunday, but it is a bit of a crowning because 
you know how we need to take this? We look at a story. You, you all, I, I'm not going to stop because it's too much. But just briefly, her story is that she was a very sinful woman who ended up not being allowed to enter into the church at the Holy Land by the Holy Spirit. And she realized how sinful she was, and she pursued a life of utter repentance in the desert. She communed once, but she was a citizen of heaven. Immediately, we learn. You see, you see this here? This is the power, the might of God, and we're holding hands with her. This is how we need to look at it. After the fifth Sunday of Lent, we're a little weary, we're a little tired, but now we really are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But the reason we are is because we've been given a glimpse the Sunday before in venerating the Holy Cross. And we've been given an understanding by St. Gregory Palamas the Sunday before him. And we've been taught how to honor rightly in worship. And now we're holding hands with St. Mary of Egypt. So where are we going? Where are we going, brothers and sisters? Holding hands with St. Mary of Egypt. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. But Palm Sunday, aside from the fact that it celebrates the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem, should not be taken alone. Okay, Palm Sunday represents a bit of a change in Lent because it's, uh, it's uh, first of all, we even change the covers, right? It's no longer purple. We go to gold for, for two days over there. And it's a celebration. We consume fish. We drink wine. We have a great celebration. But it's not just because of Christ's entrance into Jerusalem because I really don't want you to think of that day alone. You have to think of that day together with the day before, Lazarus Saturday. Okay? The church placed the celebration, the commemoration of Lazarus being raised from the dead the day before Palm Sunday for a purpose. This was intentionally placed in there so that excuse me, so that we begin to see the very resurrection of Christ himself. We're walking, holding hands with St. Mary of Egypt, and we're going to now witness an example of what the Lord will do for us. Lazarus Saturday. And it's with that emboldenment, with that with that encouragement that we go into Holy Week. Okay? So this is the second section. The first section was the Triodion in which we marked Sundays in a particular way. The second section is the Great Lent, those six weeks in which we mark Sundays in a particular way. And now we get to the third section that takes us to the, to the Mount Everest of worship. To Pascha. The third section is Holy Week, Holy and Great Week. And um, if you want to hear something really funny, 
you don't, no problem, I'll tell you anyway. Uh, something really funny was when uh, one time I, I got to a service where there, were, there was going to be a celebration of a number of other priests. And I, I walked into a vestibule, kind of like this, but you entered from a door back there. Walk in there and two priests are having an argument about whether or not it should be Holy Week or Great Week, or Holy Lent or Great Lent. So, all of you who think that Holy Week is correct, put up your hands. All of you who think that Great Week is correct, put up your hands. church actually call it Holy and Great Lent, Holy and Great That's how it is in the original books. Both correct. Does it even matter? It doesn't matter, obviously. I'm glad you humored me with putting up your hands. It, it doesn't matter, first of all, but the reality is that we do try to assign to assign a special place in our lives by these, okay? So I like, I think Holy Week actually, I'm with you. I think Holy Week sounds nicer. It kind of rolls a little easier off the tongue, Holy Week. Maybe just because it's me and I got an accent, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Um, yes? Yes. I know. <laughs> I do not like doing that. It's an influence of Western Christianity into, into uh, Russian and Ukrainian orthodoxy. We do not call, call it Passion Week. That's not our target. Yes, of course he suffered, no question about it. But Passion Week does not appear in any of our ancient Christian books. The term is Passion Week. And more importantly, it's not our destination. It's the holiness that's our destination. That's why they called it Holy and Great Week. So anyhow, I don't get worked up about it. I don't, I don't, I don't have fights in the sacristy about it with other priests. But since we're talking about trying to learn something, I encourage you to call it Holy Week or Great Week, okay? So it's, uh, you have to understand that Western Christianity had a lot of influence over orthodoxy during the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And a lot of that was covered a lot of Ukraine, uh, you know, the Ruthenians, Slovaks, Carpatho-Russians, and even a, po a portion of Romania, Transylvania. And additionally, the, the Russian imperial court 
they were enamored with Western Europe. They all wanted to be like the, uh, like the, like the school of classical music in Vienna for their music. They all wanted to dress like the Parisians. They all wanted to uh, be as uh, successful mechanically as the Germans. So they took a lot from that. I mean, I, I possibly, but I don't want to peg it on the Jesuits. It is certainly a Roman Catholic influence. Certainly Roman Catholic influence. Once again, if somebody calls it in a church, Passion Week, don't get worked up, because it's, it's not that important, okay? None of our salvation will be relying on that. But just since you asked, I thought I'd share. <laughs> Um, so we're digressing here now. I, I apologize. Uh, let's uh, let's get back to it. Bottom line is that we need to assign. We need to assign, even with language, a different attention to this particular week and to that particular time. Lent, right? More than just Lent, it's called the Great Lent. Okay, or the Holy and Great Lent, because we have other Lenten periods in the year that are not called Holy and Great in the ancient books of the church. Advent, right, the, the, the fast before nativity is not called Holy and Great. Uh, the apostles, the Theotokos, they're not called Holy and Great. This one was set apart, and this one week out of the 52 weeks of the year is set apart. And in this one week, we have different themes for every day, and they are marked by different services every day. While Triodian and Lent were, uh, were marked for the Sundays, Holy Week is marked for every single day. What is notable and really beautiful, and I'm sure you all love it as much as I do, maybe more, the bridegroom matin services that take place Monday through Wednesday, okay? The bridegroom matin services are, are just such a, to me it's like I'm walking in a park that's filled with beautiful fragrant flowers. Those services are just, maybe I'm wrong for liking them more than others, but, but I, do, I do love them very dearly. Those bridegroom matins uh, are really meaningful and powerful. Perhaps lesser known, and also because they're not always served in, in parishes, even I don't serve them all the time, um, are the pre-sanctified liturgies that take place the morning. Okay, so the bridegroom matins of Monday takes place on Sunday evening, on Palm Sunday evening. That's the beginning of Holy Week. But on Monday morning, we have the pre-sanctified liturgy. Okay, and it goes the same way for Monday night Tuesday, Tuesday night Wednesday, you see? And then Tuesday night, uh, Wednesday night, we're done with that cycle. But... You see what's happening here? We have the matins on the night before, but we have the pre-sanctified liturgy the morning of. I'm going to ask you a question here. Oh, you know what? I'm going to stop because I'm going to get too long. Forget it. Then we move on to Thursday. 
We move on to Thursday, right? What's happening on Thursday? In Western Europe, it's called Maundy Thursday, uh, oftentimes, and that's not, it's not necessarily wrong. Uh, but um, what, anybody remember? This is a little minute. What we call that service on Monday, on uh, Holy Thursday, morning, in the morning? Yes, the Liturgy of Institution. The Liturgy of Institution, and that's a really, really important service. It's a, it's a longer Vesperal Liturgy of, uh, of uh, St. Um, Basil, and it's, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's not all that different than other liturgies, but there's one thing that happens which only happens that one time, and it's the consecration of an extra lamb, of an extra portion of the offering bread for communion, which is set apart in the tabernacle, in the tabernacle, for the priest to use for throughout the year for whatever occasion. But we're going to get to a little more to the theology of that a little later. Then we get into Friday. What's Friday? What's happening on Holy Friday? A lot. <laughs> You're right, Angie. She's right. A lot happens on Holy Friday. Holy and Great Friday of Holy and Great Week, a lot happens. First of all, we have three, technically four services, but three services in the day. And you could add more if you wanted to, but I'm not saying you should, Father. It's not like we don't have enough, you know. But ultimately, ultimately, this day we celebrate the funeral and burial of Jesus Christ. We celebrate the act of, watch how I'm going to put this, returning him to the dirt that he himself created. <laughs> Returning him to the very basic element that he himself gave birth to out of nothingness. And you and I do that. You and I are deemed worthy by him to do that. I'm going to stop here for a moment only to remind you that we're in exile and we're trying to understand our new location, our new community, our new sense of purpose, our new identity. And we're seeing what value and worthiness God places on us. Are you seeing it now? Are you getting closer to the target? We're feeling it, aren't we, on Holy Friday? Wonderful. Then we get on to Saturday. What is Saturday morning? Tell me, please. Okay, that was easy. Got to think of something harder. What is Saturday? 
First of all, it feels like we're reading like half the Bible. For gosh sakes, really? You had to put it all on one day? The fathers of the church really messed up with that one. I mean, you just listen and you listen and you listen. And there's like reading after reading. Do you know how many readings there are? Yes, thank you. 15 Old Testament readings. It's crazy. I mean, we've got other days in the year, man. Come on, seriously. Um, it's a really amazing service if you think about it. Because after you're already tired out completely, what happens? The priest starts throwing stuff around. I mean, he's, everybody's been trying to clean the church for Holy Week, right? And then, after everybody cleans the church, what does the priest do? He just messes it all up. And it stays like that for at least a week. In some traditions, for 40 days. That's just because priests are messy. We don't like cleaning up after ourselves. Right, Father? <laughs> so, essentially, it's a, it's a service of contrasts, this one, isn't it? It's a, it's a service that really kind of rips us out of one mindset and takes us into another, doesn't it? You're right. We're already celebrating the resurrection. But it's not the visible resurrection that we're celebrating. What are we celebrating? Spiritual. Yeah, it's all spiritual, but let's get a little more specific. And I'm going to... Do you have an icon of the resurrection here? Exactly. Oh, yes, right on this wall. So, if you want to think of what we're celebrating on Saturday morning, it's the dark part with all the broken down shadows. And it's those caves, uh, not caves, like boxes, coffins, right? It's those grave sites that Jesus Christ is pulling us out of, right? We're celebrating that portion on Saturday morning. The resurrection begins where? In the Hades. That's right. That's where it begins. That's what happens on that day. And then we get to the next day. What happens on that day? You know what happens on that day? Party. First of all, we eat lamb, right? We eat lots of meat in the church. That's right. Christ is risen. What happens? Party in the church. Christ is risen. What happens? Let's, get, let's push a little bit. If Christ is risen, what happens? The tombs are open. Yeah. Death has been completely destroyed. The seal is destroyed. Right? Let's, let's take it a little further. One more step. One more step. No more bondage. Right? The dictatorship has been demolished. If the, the dictatorship has been destroyed, has been removed, what has happened? Freedom. freedom. If the freedom has been restored, what has happened? The image and likeness in you and I has been given back to us as a gift. And if we have accepted and received it and actually begin to work with it as freedom, what do we have now? The journey we have arrived at the top. We have the new community. We have the new place. We have the new land. 
the new environment, the new understanding of self. You see Christ in that icon? Right at the top, larger than life? That's really you. That's the only reason why he's in that icon. Because you and I are there. This is a new identity. People who are growing into God. It's a little scary, isn't it? It's a little overwhelming. At least for me. Good. Let me take a sip of water. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll give you a topic. Um, this was that kind of rapid-fire journey, okay? And there's more we can say. Each week we can talk about the, the, the theme of the week uh, at great length. For Holy Week, really, Monday, Tuesday, each one has a theme. We could expand on that uh, a great deal. But I want to talk to you a little bit about the different services. Uh, just a couple of the different services that we have in, uh, in Lent and Holy Week, okay? Because we see them and we love them, right? We love these services. They, they stand apart. Even if we don't want to give them special credit, they do stand apart. We see it. We feel it when we get there. Excuse me. At least I certainly do. And it happens to me every year. You know, one time I was, I was even wondering, will it ever get to Great Lent where I do my first pre-sanctified and I say, yeah, just like every other year. It never happens. First of all, I forget from one year to the next. I have to read it again just to, just to remember how to do stuff. But more importantly, it is that punctuating for us in our thought process that it really kind of wakes us up. And that's good. It's intended to be that. Now, the liturgy of pre-sanctified gifts. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's a liturgy. Obviously, we take communion. It's a little bit different in structure. I'll talk about that briefly later. But we don't know all of the details of its origin. And it's impossible to know all of it. But what we do know is that the church established this liturgy firmly in, in the worship life. Um, it was by the encouragement of St. Gregory the Great. He was one of the popes of Rome in the 6th century, and he's given credit for kind of establishing it in the life of the church with most of the rubrics as we serve it today. So, but we know that it wasn't written by him as we have authorship like we have for St. John Chrysostom or St. Basil. But uh, even so, oftentimes we commemorate him at the end in the dismissal because he established it for us. Uh, we also know that um, he was a Pope of Rome, but he was a legate in Constantinople before that. So he had really his hands in both of the leadership circles of the time, right? So, yeah. Moving on. It also appears that there were decisions specifically about this service in the church councils. 
Okay, the, there was a council in the seventh century, the Quinisex uh, Council. Uh, don't need to worry about those details, but it's mentioned specifically in the councils. And actually, very few of the rubric type things are mentioned in the councils. They didn't deal with the worship life of the church all that much. They dealt with big, bigger, big picture things. They didn't deal with minutia. But this one is specifically prescribed in there. So that's, that's a little interesting. Um, now, it's different than the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom and St. Basil, which themselves are very much alike, right? With the exception of the priest's lengthier prayers and a couple of lines in there. Those two are rather the same. The presanctified liturgy is essentially a merger between Vespers and the liturgy. And that's exactly why it is done, um, it is done in the evening. But it also has a completely different character. Okay? It has a repentance character for which the church decided that it's in Great Lent that we should use it. However, many scholars pointed out that this was most likely not necessarily a Lenten service originally. It was probably just something done out of practicality for people who worked during the day and might have been busy on a Sunday to have a communion service, a Eucharistic service in the evening. So there's just a little tidbit there. I wouldn't worry about it, uh, but this just a little bit of information. So what is different? You know, we have the merger of the two services, Vespers and Liturgy. We have a repentant character to it. But what is different? What is visibly different? Uh, that's not visibly different. You're correct, but that's not visibly different. <laughs> we'll get back to that, okay? That's, that's a visibly different thing. You're right. The priest covers his head. He takes the ayer, as it's called, or the shelter. He takes this uh, rectangle, uh, square cloth, which covers the gifts, and he puts it over his head. That's the one thing that happens uh, which is different. But there's something else that's visibly and audibly different right at that same time. What's different? It is silence. It is done in silence. That great entrance, that procession, all the way through the church is done in silence. The, the, the chanters stop. And what else happens? Everybody kneels, which is different than a regular liturgy when everybody stands. Everybody kneels. Now, we have chairs, and I think it's fine. We have pews in our church, which are uncomfortable, tight, and stripping. But it's not just the kneeling part. Technically, we're supposed to be in prostration with the face to the ground. And to mimic the priest covering his head. Okay? What else is different with this liturgy? It's dark in the church. We don't use light. Every other communion service we have full lights. 
Because every liturgy is technically a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. So, but it's dark. Really, for the pre-sanctified liturgy, we turn on the lights for glad some light, and then again we go to minor lights. Even in Vespers, a normal Vespers on Saturday, you turn on the lights at the gladsome light, right? And then you leave them on up until just before the dismissal. But in pre-sanctified, you turn them off after gladsome light because we're marking something different. What else is visibly different? What else is visibly different? And now I'm probably getting into some uncharted territory because I'm not sure what all of the practices are. But at one point in the service, the curtain is only open halfway. You don't do that? We don't do that. Explain it anyway. It's a beautiful custom. So, has anyone seen that? Anywhere? I know, yeah. It's yet to do it. Uh, oh, you know what it is? I've seen that. You've seen that? Yep. So, what is that? What, are, what might this be? Because it's kind of a strange thing. It's like almost like, you know, the guy forgot to do his job. <laughs> um, traditionally, in the ancient practice of the church, this side was for women, this side was for men. And who else sits on this side? Bishop. Bishop. So, but why? Why is this only open to the women? You were the first to announce the news. The first to what? To announce the news. Indeed. They saw, Mary Magdalene saw the resurrected Christ first. That's what's marked in these little practices of the church. In these little practices of the church, we remind ourselves of the life of the church, of the life of Christ. In Duluth, we actually open at every liturgy. I open it halfway, immediately after the consecration, and then it's open when you commemorate the bishop, because then you have the hymn of the Theotokos, and then you commemorate the bishop, right? After consecration, we bring the church into the celebration of the consecrated post. I'm getting into details now. And after we have the consecrated post, we bring the whole church. We begin with the Theotokos and the saints, and then we say, among the first, or above all, we remember our bishop, right? And then after that, and all of mankind. So just as we commemorate the bishop, we open the whole curtain, because now the men have been given access to see the resurrected Christ as well. Pretty neat, isn't it? So these are all, these are all kind of unique, unique things. Um, unique things that we see, that we see happening. But let's get back to what Angie said earlier. We don't have a consecration. We don't have a consecration. Why don't we have a consecration? Because that's tough. Yes, please. But why? 
we're told, yeah, that's what it says in the books, you're right. They wrote it somewhere in the 6th century. Not to do that, but why? Because it symbolizes resurrection. Like a new resurrection, so... Yeah, no, that's right. It's a resurrection, right? So, yes. Sorry? Uh, now we're talking. Now we're talking. We're not ready for the feast. We're not ready for the feast. The bridegroom has arrived. The full celebration is trying to wait for the still working. Our preparation is still living out. So that's why we use the pre-sanctified host, a pre-sanctified body, which we bring forward. But you might even go further and question, what's the point? If we can't consecrate it, we can't have a liturgy, but we're communing, why? I mean, seriously. Because you could ask that, I mean, you could, right? If we have all of this, you know why? Because even though we know we're not ready, we know where we're heading. Because we know the destination, brothers and sisters. We know we have a destination. We're not aimless, right? We're not targetless. And we prepare the Sunday before the host, the body, and blood, and then on Wednesday we're reminding ourselves all of this striving, all of this work, I know where I'm going. I'm going to the place where the bridegroom is. But we know we're not ready. And that's why it remains a repentance-driven service. And that's why we keep the uh, lights low, right? They have the different, if you, if you go to monasteries, in, in the liturgical books, the ancient books, they have you know, many different levels of lights, right? And they light them, they put them up, it's almost like somebody's full-time job. I'll you know, just kind of turning on lights and turning them off, you know? As if they couldn't program them. But anyhow, this, is the reminder that we're still in the exile. We're still in darkness. And because we know we're not ready, when the gifts are brought around, we do not face the gifts. And because the priest is bringing them around to reassure the body that that is the target, he knows he's not ready, so he's covering the face. Can you give me a parallel? Somebody took off a sand somewhere. What was inside? You see, we have to break ourselves down in order to build ourselves back. Being in exile means 
of rediscovering the self, a rearrangement of the self. And when, when, I, when I go with it, I'm not special, every other priest does the same. I get out from there, first of all, I make sure I don't trigger all those steps. <laughs> and I go through, and in, in, uh, in Duluth, Minnesota, we actually share many of the services with the other Orthodox Church in town. So we all turn in Wednesday nights and we serve together and have a meal. So we're together, and I process, and you know, the, I, I, I receive the sensing, right? And I, it just, even the minutia of having the smoke come underneath the air as I, as I smell, it just moves me every single time. There's something else that's different. If you've seen in celebrations, and you guys are actually quite blessed to have a couple of priests here almost every Sunday, right? So when, when you exit, most of the time you'll see in celebrations, one priest carries the discus and one carries the chalice, right? Or the priest and the deacon, right? That's not what happens at the priest What happens? Anybody remember? That's right. How do you know you're supposed to, your face your face is supposed to happen? <laughs> Angie, no, you're cheating. <laughs> you looked up once? Did you confess? Did you confess? You better go to confession now. <laughs> uh, that was the trick question. I knew I was gonna get somebody. I'm just glad I got my fellow Romanian here. <laughs> um, you're right. We have the gifts, one on top of each other, not parallel. When the priest processes in, during a normal Sunday, they're side by side. Why are they side by side in a normal, on a normal Sunday? Why are they side by side? Uh, they are, correct, but there's something else about it. They're equal. The equality of offering. We never think much about that. The work, the labor of preparing the bread and the labor of preparing the wine is considered equal. Because what we're taking through is an offering. It's your offering, right? That's why the priests bring it out. Because in the ancient church, it was on, in a side room. Anyhow, mechanics here. But the bottom line is, it is your offering. That's why that procession goes to the very back. And when I was in seminary, I was cantor and youth director at a rather good-sized Romanian church in Winnipeg. And Father Victor, a wonderful priest from, from Niamts, Moldavia, he would go out into the... <laughs> out into the uh, exonarthex, you know, and just go over there and make sure that everybody saw it. You see this? He would look at them like this. He, he, was, a, he was a very, very outwardly manifesting type of person. A wonderful man. He loved me dearly, and I love him dearly. He cared for me well. But he, he had a way of just making sure you did not miss it. And if you weren't paying attention, uh, are you seeing this? Okay. Um, and sometimes I wish I 
you know, not all priests could do that. I couldn't do that. If I did that, they'd kick me out. They'd say, you're weird. And they'd probably be right. But some priests can pull it off. He could. Um, this, is, this is different, right? We have the equality of the offering that's, that's marked by holding it together, right? But in the presentified, it's not equality that's marked. What is being marked? The already sanctified body and blood that we will receive. The chalice is there really just as a, as a tool at the pre-sanctified liturgy. Just as a yeah, practical addition. And there's something else that happens, and I realize that this is really not visible for most of you, but when the priest when the priest brings it back in the altar, or, or the clergy, if on the holy table, on a normal Sunday, you have the chalice here and the discus here. When you come with a presentified, it's reversed. The discus is here because it already has on it the presentified left, and the chalice is on the left. And the chalice is on the left. In fact, it's like that even on the proscomedia table beforehand. Okay? And we might think, ah, just a detail. 99% people don't see it. It's okay. And again, I've seen priests who maybe forget or don't do that because it's our ordinary type of thing. And I, I don't bother. I don't bother correcting it because I don't think we're talking about it. But why do you think that's so? Why do you think that would be so? Think of just one little big thing. If it's on this side, this is the, this is the hand that the priest brings it to the people. The right hand of the priest distributes it to the people. Because the priest is a vehicle Receiving, right? And these little details force us to think differently about everything that happens. I'm getting too deep into this pre-sanctified stuff. There, there are a bazillion little details like that that I could share with you. And there are too many of them. In fact, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I used to love knowing about all these little things. And I, and I would think, I would kind of start planning that one day I'm going to be a great theologian and I'm going to force everybody to do every single one. <laughs> then they'll really kick me out. You're right, Angie. But um, I now feel quite strongly that it's impossible to have absolute uniformity, and perhaps it's not even desirable. And more importantly, if I worry about the mechanics too much, I'm going to miss the purpose. <laughs> I'm going to miss the target. So don't, don't get worked up about it if you see something different. All right. The other service that I want to describe for you is the Sunday Lenten Vespers. And this one is another beautiful service that has its own little character, actually. Where is this from? Sunday, Lent, and Vespers. Because outside of Lent, how are we doing for time? 
What? No. I, I told you I would need a lot of time for this. So why this service of the, of the Sunday evening is actually not highly marked, even in monasteries, believe it or not, throughout the year. It is marked on, uh, in Lent, in Great Lent specifically, because it actually mimics the Sunday of Orthodoxy Vespers. And the way that service started is with the Empress Theodora and the Patriarch and the whole, all the churches of Constantinople gathering in a procession with the icons. And the churches of that one city came together. The community, the different communities of the great city came together. And that's exactly why on Sunday evenings, the Lenten Vespers are supposed to be in uh, celebration with the nearby parishes. It's always supposed to be that way. Now, I don't know, in, other, in some parts of the country it might not be practical. In our area, we drive an hour and a half to share with five other, five other churches, because there just aren't as many. Yes? Correct. They do that in the Lehigh Valley. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, like I said, in some areas it's a little impractical, but that service is um, that service is important. I think it's important because it is actually, if you look at the hymns in that, it's sort of the kickoff for the next week. And it speaks that way, actually. It even says, here we are at the starting point of the second week of Lent. It's, it's really very, very clear as to what we're doing for the next week. And the fact that, um, the fact that we bring the, the churches together for that is the idea of staying in oneness and strengthening each other for the next week. Actually, because you see, earlier in the day at this Sunday liturgy, we have relaxed a little bit because it was Sunday, because we consecrated the Eucharist. And now, Sunday evening, we're saying we've got to return to our focus. We're still in Lent, we're going back into it. Um, we also, aside from the beautiful hymnology, we also have a rather large number of prostrations at that service because we alternate some of the uh, end hymns with prostrations and we have the uh, prayer of Saint Ephraim, the Syrian, that, that, we, that we bring back into our routine for the next week. And um, the, other, the other thing that it marks yet again is because we had a bit of a celebration in the morning it says, as a reminder, we're going into another week when we shed attachment to the world to reinstate attachment to the kingdom of God. Now, here's a quick question. I'm rushing, really rushing. What, I, I want to go back to Holy and Great Week on something. What happened when Jesus entered the River Jordan? What happened? Speak up. I know you know it. I, I can hear you. The water went the other way? 
Yes, that's, you got straight to it. Perfect. The Jordan, the River Jordan started flowing the opposite way. This is what we know. This is what we believe. In fact, people have seen that happen even in present day experience. And we sing it in the hymns. The Jordan turned back at receiving you, O Christ. Okay? It's in the hymns a few times, actually. Now you'll have to pay attention. <laughs> but you see, this is the reason why all of Holy Week and throughout Lent, everything is upside down, brothers and sisters. The fathers of the church established on purpose that matins it served the evening before and the vespers of that day is served after matins on the morning. We have matins before vespers. We have morning before evening. Right? And that's completely backwards for us in our liturgical life. Everything is turned upside down precisely because it is time for a cathartic transformation. Jesus Christ is heading into the days of his persecution, suffering, scourging, beating, shaming, spitting in his glorious and beautiful face. And because we're getting ready for that, because we're getting ready for that, to, to, to experience that, we have to turn ourselves upside down. We have to turn ourselves around. And that goes hand in hand with the word metania, right? Repentance. Why do we do that? You see, Jesus Christ is heading to his death on the cross, and he's being forced to carry on display to the, to the entire community the shameful punishment to which he was sentenced to die. But it wasn't his wrongdoing, it was ours. We take everything for granted, brothers and sisters. We humans tend to just become so ungrateful, thinking that it's ours, it belongs to us, we've worked for it, we deserve it, it's ours, right? Everything, food, clothing, schools, people, health, we take it all for granted. So during that week, and even throughout Lent, we intentionally and methodically turn completely around to make sure that we see the truth, true source of everything that actually is. Now, hopefully we don't wait every year for just that one week to do that. The reason we do that during that one week is so that we remember to do that every other, every other one of the 51 weeks of the year. And we have a tool for that. We have a tool to stay honest in being turned around, turned upside down, brothers and sisters. And I'm closing with this. That tool is the mystery of confession, sacrament of confession. That's the third session, the third topic. But do we have a minute or two for questions? I'm sorry, I, I told you I would have a lot to share, and I actually skipped a couple of things. Sorry about that. Any questions?
No? You're all tired? Yes, Father. You talked about Holy Week as the week par excellence, but the other 51 weeks need to be weeks of repentance as well. And maybe you can talk about the weekly commemorations as a little mini Holy Week every week. Uh, you know, Monday we commemorate the angels, etc. Right. So I, I mentioned I mentioned that we have cycles. Yes. Yeah. I didn't stop on that because it would have been uh, it would have been. Go into that a little bit and maybe reflecting Holy Week in our great week. Okay. So Holy Week, <clears throat> Holy Week is like I said, really just a setting of the tone for the other fifty-one weeks of the year. And this setting of the tone is not, does not mean that we should have all the services of Holy Week every week. That's not the goal, right? The goal is to have all those services so that we learn how to do that without needing the services. Now, we have different commemorations, and I, I didn't write them down here. I might have a difficult time remembering them now in order. But we have Monday, Sunday is the day of the resurrection. That's the first day of the week. Right? Then we have um, Monday is the angels. Tuesday is the, uh, the prophet. No. What's the Baptist. John the Baptist, the prophet. Wednesday is um, we, we commemorate the betrayal. And uh, Thursday is the hierarch, St. Nicholas. Friday is the crucifixion, the cross. And Saturday is the, um, the day of the departed, actually, and, uh, and uh, actually the day of rest. A lot of people think that the day of rest is Sunday. That's not actually correct. It's Saturday. It remains Saturday. You're a biblical scholar. Yeah. So he can talk to you about that a lot more. But um, the... Um, these commemorations, the, these were placed there, again, like I said, for order. These were designations, right? These were clearly intentionally and methodically uh, placed there so that we can pray with the kingdom of heaven. That's why they're placed in a particular order like that. After we've really, because every, every week we begin with the resurrection. Right? We start with Vespers, when we go into hymns of the resurrection, and we turn on the lights halfway through because we're seeing it. And then we get to Matins, but we, we start Matins with a little bit of darkness because the, the full lights don't come in until doxology, actually. And then we go into the resurrection, which is the full, into the liturgy, which is the full resurrection every time, right? It's a full celebration every Sunday. But then on Monday, we start praying again so that we can again get ready for the resurrection. And we start praying Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And the, the reason for this is so that we pray with the kingdom of heaven because we have received the kingdom of heaven in us and we pray with the citizens of the kingdom of heaven to reach Sunday again. To reach Sunday again. And... Um, I'm not sure what you mean about, yeah, but anyhow, Holy Week is the same day, the same thing, but the, each day has a lot more. We commemorate uh, 
you know, the virgins, we commemorate the, you know, you ha we have the hymn of Cassiani on, on Holy Tuesday, right? The, the utter repentance, the utter brokenness of self or the realization of utter brokenness, right? And so on and so forth. Um, anyhow, other questions? Yes, please. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that. I've seen that discussion before. Liturgical scholars uh, feel that way. So there was a. We've seen a great deal of kind of a re-resurrection, if I can call it that, of attention to liturgical theology uh, during the previous century by two fabulous liturgical theologians who have spent their lives, dedicated their lives to. Um, to studying the, the life of worship. One of them is the famous John Fundulis, Ioannis Fundulis, a Greek theologian, obviously, who I would, I would, many people call him the forefather of liturgics, or the modern forefather, because he was just 18th, I'm sorry, not 18th century, 1800s, late, latter part of the 1800s, 1900s. And then with him, is, and a little bit after him, the famous Romanian Ene Braniște. And these guys have pulled, I mean, these guys had so much information that they put together for us. They're visionaries of, of the worship of the church and how it reflects the kingdom. And I, they could see around the corner, you know, and they're so good. And Ioannis Fundulis actually said the same thing in terms of the enactment. The liturgy of St. John and St. Basil uh, offering the gifts separate means really the, uh, really that reminding people that Jesus Christ sat with the apostles and he showed them each thing, each one of their offerings, so to speak. He, so that's, that's what this theologian basically tried to point out. Uh, and, I, and I believe it to be true. Okay, I'm gonna back up a little bit. It's a very good question. Perhaps a little too much detail, I don't have to forgive me. It's in America right now. But <clears throat> why do we have communion to begin with? The reason we have communion, the reason we the Eucharist, the reason we have liturgy, the reason we have even the Bible today, now, on earth, is so that we would not need those in the kingdom of heaven when we draw closer in theosis. Right? So when the Lord Jesus was with his apostles in those last days of his, and he sat with that inner circle, right? 
with the ones who were most ready to receive it, because not everyone was ready to receive it. When he sat with them, what he gave them over there, he gave them a sanctification of the self through the sanctification of absolutely everything that he created. You see, in the fruit of the wine, in the fruit of the grape, and the bread, that wheat, what is being, and, and the water that's mixed in, what we actually see is we see how something that is in the ground by our hands actually comes out miraculously, it buds forth, it becomes something completely different than what we planted, and we take it and we labor over it, and we make it into something completely different than what it was when we picked it, and than what it was on the ground when we planted And the wine is the same, you see. The wine is the same. Because we planted a seedling, right, a seed, and we turned it into a tree. We turned it into a, an item. And this item itself miraculously gives a fruit the mystery of God's creation. It gives a fruit, and we take that fruit, which looks completely different than the seedling that we planted, and we labor over it, and we actually wait for it. We have to exercise patience, and we have to exercise patience with the dome as well. You see? We labor and we wait. We, we, we strive and we sit, and then it gives us the basis, the basis of life bread and wine. And then we mix it with what? Something that we never did before. Water. You don't make water. I don't make water. It just comes to us when we strike a rock in the desert. It just is a gift. That's why water is added to the communion, brothers and sisters. Why would, why would we have water, right? It's not even actually mentioned at the last supper, right? Why would we add water? Because the fathers of the church wanted to remind us that it doesn't just happen by our labor. It's actually a mystery that just comes to us. We just get it. It's just a complete gift. And then that complete gift represents the totality. We offer back to God the totality of His creation. And the totality of His creation includes the labor of your hands as well. But not just that, it also includes the patience of your character. The patience of your character. Because you have to wait for the dough to rise. Because if you don't wait for the dough to rise, it will not become bread. And you have to wait for the wine, for the fruit to ferment, and for the wine to sit. Because if you don't have the patience for the wine to sit, you will not have wine. Right? And that waiting time is important because that patience, what, what is patience ultimately? It's the working of the self. You have to fight the self to be patient, especially if you're a man. <laughs> you, I mean, think about all of you. How many of you, when you tell your child, hey, clean your room, do you say that with patience? No, you want to clean the room now, gosh darn it. <laughs> No, but you have to work on yourself and say, hey, son, daughter, can you please clean your room? Because tomorrow's Sunday. 
So you give yourself something to work with while you give your child something to work with. And you force yourself to wait. Why is that important? Did somebody else do that to us? Let me ask you about that. Did somebody else do that to us? Our parents? Our parents? Yeah, they did. When Jesus Christ returned to this place of glory, brothers and sisters, on the 40th day after his resurrection, what did he say? What did he say? Come on, you know it. I will send you the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. But not now. You will have to wait here in the city with the people, with the body of people. You will have to wait for another 10 days. Do you see what I'm saying here, brothers and sisters? Even the greatest blessing that he gives us, he tells us, I won't force it on you. I won't force it on you. You will have to actually desire it. Desire it. Does this help? I really feel that that's important. Seeing the fullness of understanding of these things that we do is valuable. At the presentified all of that has been completed the Sunday before. And that's why we hold it on top. But we still don't look at it, right? Because we're still prepared. All right. I went over the right? Yes, good. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take about a 30-minute break.